Welcome to the fifth quarter. Conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Join the journey as they learn from coaches, authors, military leaders, successful entrepreneurs, business people, and motivators. Tonight's guest, Daniel Marks, who's just got a great story that I think everyone's going to really, really enjoy. He currently is on the men's basketball staff at Howard University, but his background, Vanderbilt. So we know he's a little bit smarter than Layson and I, but a manager at Vanderbilt. He's been a writer for Dime Magazine, worked for the Milwaukee Bucks. So we're going to get some great insights and stories from there. Um, probably part of what he'll be remembered for at such a young age is a project he started called Scouting and Scavenging, which I think uh, we all want to be better and his idea is taken off. So um, we're just happy to have you, Daniel. Maybe take a quick time out and take us a little bit on your journey and how you've gotten here. Yeah, so thanks for having me, Jeff and Layson. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and chat with you guys. Uh, so a little bit more about myself. Uh, I was born in Washington, D.C., moved to New Jersey when I was nine. My two passions have always been sports and politics. Um, so went into college kind of thinking I wanted to go on one of those two career paths and pursued opportunities in both throughout college, was a manager for Kevin Stallings at Vanderbilt from 2009 to 2013. Uh, we won the SEC championship my junior year, produced three NBA players, John Jenkins, Jeff Taylor, Festus Azili. Uh, I did internship, as you mentioned, at Dime Magazine, which was really cool. Got to see the media writing side, which I really enjoyed. Um, on the political side, I interned when Cory Booker, the current U.S. Senator, was the mayor of Newark, New Jersey. I interned in his economic development office, and I kind of saw this slow-moving wheels of government, and I was like, ah, I don't know if this is for me. I'm going to be more of a passionate observer of politics as opposed to maybe a career choice. So kind of set my sights on trying to get with an NBA team and rewind a little bit to the summer of 2010 when LeBron left my, uh, Cleveland to go to Miami. And the Bucks had had, I thought, an underrated offseason. They signed Drew Gooden. They drafted Larry Sanders, made a trade for Corey Maggette. It turned out to be a disastrous offseason in some respects. But I wrote a story at Dime Magazine about that, saying they had an underrated offseason. It got picked up by the team Twitter account. And the GM at the time, John Hammond, reached out to me about the story, thinking I was like a young Shams Charania, a lot of college intern uh, writing stories uh, at that point from my dorm room to start my sophomore year. And we connected because of the guys we had at Vanderbilt. His daughter's best friend was in my class at Vanderbilt. Um, we were able to build up a relationship. They had called me for some info on those guys my junior year. I kind of on a whim asked if I'd be able to come observe some draft workouts. And they said, yes, they let me sit in on meetings for three days in the summer of 2012, which was great. I got to see Will Barton and Evan Fournier work out against each other. Um, going to my senior year, I produced a lot of like projects and studies trying to get my name out there. Knew I kind of wanted to go into the team side. So I was focused on internships, applied for a bunch, didn't get a lot. Uh, got a Bucks internship September 2013, did a year as a basketball ops intern, 
three years as the um, scouting database manager, basically overseeing all our background and intel gathering and our credentialing process. Two years with our G League team as director of operations, helping everything from roster management, trades to team travel and logistics and everything in between. Three years as manager of prospect information, um, doing East Coast scouting. I was based regionally in New Jersey and assisting our GM, John Horst, with his scouting efforts. And then in the midst of that, uh, as you mentioned, founded Scouting and Scavenging, um, an initiative that encourages sports professionals to collect unused hotel toiletries from their travels for donation to underserved communities. As you guys, uh, I'm sure, are aware, like a lot of this stuff gets thrown out, is wasted, um, regardless of if you use it or not. So wanted to find a way to, to help salvage those supplies and galvanize people in the sports world for a common cause. Because one of the things, as I'm sure some of your guests previously you know, allude to, when you're in sports, you can be so focused on the climb, the climb, the climb, the next job, the next recruit, the next game, the next scout. And you can kind of lose sight of what's really important in life. And that's you know helping others, serving other people. And was looking for a way to do that, but with a chaotic schedule of never knowing if I could commit to something every Tuesday at four, this was kind of a great way for me to do it on my own terms. So that is a, and now uh, chief program strategist at Howard university just started a couple weeks ago. Um, we'll be doing a lot of NIL alumni engagement operations and uh, a number of other things with coach Blakeney. So really excited for the new opportunity with him and, and with the program. So that is a long winded version of the Daniel Marks uh, biography. No, it's going to be interesting and, and to pick this apart. So Layson and I are both SEC people now. I grew up a Big East kid, but now I'm Tennessee Orange, root for the Vols, and Layson bleeds LSU. But how does a kid from Jersey, besides SATs, end up at Vanderbilt? So I actually took the ACTs, Jeff. Uh, did that, you know, I did like the one of those like diagnostic tests, which are you better at? And they said I'd be better at the ACT. So um, I, I guess it paid off if I got into Vandy. But uh, I wanted to go somewhere different for college. I knew I'd probably end up back on the East Coast because that's where all my family is, where I'm from, familiar with. So I was like, I have these four years to go explore a different part of the country and see something new. So I had set a 90 mile radius from my house to college. So the closest college I looked at was University of Pennsylvania. Um, and then, you know, Cornell, Northwestern, WashU, St. Louis, Vanderbilt, Johns Hopkins, Rice. And I think that was the kind of the, the list I was working off of, but really just wanted to experience something new. I love to travel. I'm a pretty adventurous person. So I wanted to get outside of my comfort zone and see another part of the country and loved the SEC sports aspect. I applied the year that Vanderbilt went 5-0 and to start the season in football, had college game day. So I was like expecting like great things for the program. And then my first two years, 2-10, and 2-10, and 10, but then James Franklin got hired. And those were a few, fun few years. So that's, that's how I ended up at Vandy. Layson, I eliminated those schools early in my college plans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I eliminated them by my grades. By your grades, uh, right? Yeah. Your, your uh, academic performance. Daniel, let's talk Kevin Stallings. Let's talk one of the first things anyone at Vandy 
I talk about the benches being on the baseline and I'm like, oh, I hate it. But when I when I played there, I was like, I hate this even more than I thought, but it's got to be such an advantage. What are your thoughts on the benches being where they are? Yeah, I think it's definitely an advantage, especially when you're trying to call a timeout and your team's on the other end of the floor. I think the bigger advantage is the fact that the student section starts below the playing surface. So the playing surface is elevated and the first row of the student section is underneath. So it's like arm length. It's like a desk. So the students can pound and, you know, bang sticks on the, on the wood and do all sorts of stuff to create a lot of noise. And it was originally designed as a theater. So the acoustics, it can get really, really loud in there. So I think the noise and the like students being able to be so impactful is, is almost more of an advantage than the benches. But I think the bench thing comes into effect really if it's a close game and you're not used to like communicating with your team. But if there's nobody there, you can still kind of communicate. So it's when it gets really loud and packed and you can't hear yourself um, think, that's when it gets really crazy. So let's stay on the SEC. At the time... Well, Kevin Stallings, I think among basketball coaches, is well-respected. But just like in any fan base, the, you know, fans, the boosters are never happy. But Kevin Stallings connects and O with anybody, do you think? Oh, yeah, 100%. He was an offensive wizard, um, you know, brilliant coach, got to learn a lot from being around him. You know, I think... He, he, you know, he's not, you know, James Franklin came and he was kiss the babies, rally up, rah, rah. Coach Stallings was like, I want to coach. I want to, you know, talk to my players and all that other stuff. So I think, you know, there was a, there was a contrast there, but Coach Stallings had a really high level of success. And it's kind of one of those catch 22s where he elevated the standard of Vanderbilt to where being in the tournament, you know, three out of four years was an expectation but then it's like once you get to the tournament, then if you lose in the first or second round, people are like, oh, well, you can't get past point X. And I think that the boosters, maybe the administration, you know, I didn't have any inside info into that. But just kind of the sense I got was like, we need to take that next step as Vanderbilt. But they haven't had an NCAA tournament win since Coach Stallings uh, left for Pittsburgh. So. I think it's a tougher job than people think, especially in the SEC. You don't have the resources. They're you know trying to raise the money. Um, you know the academic component is, is a big hurdle, but it's just uh, you know an arms race in the SEC in, in football, basketball, and everything else. And Vandy uh, just uh, doesn't spend like the others do. And everyone else is cheating, Coach Perkins. Your Tigers. <laughs> no one ever accuses my Vols. Of, uh, of bending a rule. How about the best thing Kevin Stallings did X and O wise and then non X and O wise, Daniel? Uh, that's a great question. Um, X and O wise, I think really good. Like after timeouts, like he was really good at getting, you know, we had John Jenkins on the team who was one of the best shooters in the country during his three years. And he had a lot of plays to get John clean looks, even when teams were face guarding him or, um, you know, doubling him off the catch. And, you know, he had a really good knack for freeing up our best players to get the type of shots he wanted them to take. Um, 
off the court, you know, he was very, very witty. So he had a lot of really good one-liners. Um, if he was upset or annoyed or even just like being sarcastic. So that was kind of always, you kind of always had to be on your toes cause he might like zing you with one. Um, but that was always kind of an entertaining thing was when he would get kind of into that mode. Um, another thing too, he always had like a quote of the day. Um, and you had to, one of the players had to recite it before practice. And if you didn't recite it, you know, the team would have to run. So there were some, some good quotes. The most memorable was in the field of opportunity, it's plowing time again. Oh, we like that one. That's going to be a good one. We'll keep. How about some memories of the Vandy students? Any great stories about them or Daniel? What about rivalries, you know, besides the Tennessee Vols, you know, was there any other place or arenas that you went to that really stuck out? So the first part of the question, so I, you know, as a manager, you have a number of different duties, laundry, equipment, um, towels during the games, rebounding, keeping stats, whatever it may be. So this was back when coaches had to wear suits and the managers also wore suits during games. And I hate wearing suits. Like I really loathe the, the thought of putting on a suit. It's just so cumbersome to me. So we had had ball kids that were mopping up the wet spots on the floor during games, you know, seven, eight year olds who were like campers in the summers. But there was one instance where they like missed a wet spot and didn't get it. And a player had like slipped. So our coach, uh, Brad Frederick, who's now at UNC as an assistant, said to us like, hey, does anyone want to do this? You can wear a polo if you're doing this role. So I like immediately volunteered to be the mop guy. And there were, we were playing Kentucky my senior year, and Willie Cauley-Stein dove headfirst for a loose ball from about the free throw line extended to almost half court and was drenched in sweat. And I was mopping it by myself for probably like a minute and a half, two minutes. And like as I was like in full form, the student section started to give me a standing ovation and kind of uh, show their appreciation. And then the whole crowd kind of got into it. And when I was done, I like raised my mop into the air and acknowledgement. So that was, that was definitely a, the coolest moment for me with the student section. Um, from the, what was the second, now I lost my, oh, the second part of the question. More so maybe oh, the rivalries. rivalries or arenas that you would travel to any yeah. good stories. So I loved going to Florida. Those teams were really good. Uh, the st student section is right on top of the bench. Like there's almost no separation between the bench and like you, they're like almost in your huddle. Um, so the rowdy reptiles were always really fun. Um, and Gainesville, you always had like nice weather. You know, if you had a trip there in January, it's 80 degrees. So you can lounge by the pool. Um, so really like that. I mean, we had, some great battles with Kentucky. We beat them in the 2012 SEC championship game. And that was the team that went on to win the national title with Anthony Davis, MKG, Marcus T, Terrence Jones, Deron Lamb, Kyle Wilcher. So they were loaded. That was a Darius Miller was also on that team, like a huge moment for the program. First SEC tournament win since 1951. Um, we also had a game my freshman year, First Kentucky at home. We lost, I think, 58 to 56. That was Calipari's first year. John Wall, Eric Bledsoe, DeMarcus Cousins. Um, 
Darius Miller was also on that team. DeAndre Liggins, like loaded squad. And game day came. Aaron Andrews was there. Dickie V. And it was so loud. I had a headache for like 36 hours after because it was just ear splitting. So those games were always really fun. Um, you know, Tennessee, like always good to beat the Vols. Um, there was one game where we beat them by like 30 uh, at home my freshman year, which was really cool. Um, other arenas, like we went to Oregon one year. That was a really unique setup. Great campus. Got to meet Phil Knight at the game, actually. So that was that was a cool moment for me. Um, trying to think, like, yeah, I would say the best atmospheres, um, Florida. I mean, Kentucky, it's like the fans there, it's so interesting because they kind of expect to win. So they don't really get into the game unless it's a close game. But then when it gets close, it's like 24,000 people just in your row. Arkansas also, I have to give a shout out to Bud Walton Arena. The way it's configured, it just feels really like confined and claustrophobic. And they can get pretty rowdy. And um, obviously, with what Musselman's doing there, it seems like it's gotten to another level. Daniel, talk about the the day-to-day of being a manager. I got my start as a manager at Northwestern Louisiana, so have lots of respect for for those who are – doing those roles, but, but I know it was different from when I was, you know, when I was in school uh, in the late eighties. So talk about just day to day. How did you balance, you know, your class schedule with the demands of working with the players and, and the, the tasks that the coaches want you to, to complete? Yeah. So it, it's tough. Not going to lie. There's moments where you're like, man, I'm done with class. I really would just like to go take a nap or sit on the quad and not do anything for the next two hours. Um, but you know, it was great to be around the guys, be around the staff. Some of the managers were some of my best friends. Uh, you know, I'm going to be in one of my fellow managers' weddings coming up in a couple months. So those relationships are really, really cool. Day to day, I like to say, like, no two days are the same. Like, you could go in and do laundry, set up practice, and then coach is like, I need to go to the airport to go see a recruit and you drive to go take him or a player needs to be rebounded for 10 PM. You're coming in to get up shots with them. So, you know, I'd say there are certain duties like that you did every day in some way or form, take stats at practice, wash gear after practice, distribute the gear before practice, rebound, step into drills, um, you know, set up the locker room for home games, coordinate with visiting teams with shoot arounds and stuff like that. But a lot of it's kind of like the unspoken stuff that you just, you only understand if you're a manager and it's like, you know, giving out new socks on a Friday and by Saturday, a player asking for another pair. And it's like, we just gave you three pairs. So it's, um, it's a it's a fun existence. You know, the th- cool thing about being a manager, and this is true even from my time and definitely from your time, Lason, like the network of managers and like the networking opportunities and connectivity, whether it's manager games, competing against each other the night before, whether it's, you know, organizations like Rising Coaches or Grow the Game that try to provide mentorship opportunities for managers. There's a real connectivity in that, that there wasn't, it was starting when I was there, uh, from 09 to 13, but now it's like a full throated, almost industry. 
No, and and I love to see that. I, I'm, that the fact that, like you said, both of those organizations are now available for managers to help them. Because, you know, from my part, it's like, hey, I was lucky that, you know, there were some coaches on our staff that eventually went on to do other things. And, you know, I was able to kind of network through them. Um, you mentioned Brad Frederick earlier. You know, I'm here in the Raleigh area, used to coach at Chapel Hill High School. So very familiar with Brad, but you also worked with Dave Kaysen. What was that like? Yeah, Coach Kaysen was great. Um, I really liked him. He came my junior year. Uh, we still stay in touch. I saw him last summer at Peach Jam. We sat with each other for a game, chatted. Like he's a, he's an awesome guy. You know, really funny, uh, personable. Kind of always there to like give advice. Was super helpful to me as I was navigating some career things. Um, we had a really good staff. So, you know, we had uh, Brad Frederick, who's at UNC now. Coach Kason, who's at Oklahoma State. Dan Muller, who was head coach at Illinois State for nine years. King Rice, who is the head coach at Monmouth University, and Tom Richardson, who was a longtime assistant for Coach Stallings and prior was the head coach at Illinois State. So got to be around a lot of really smart basketball people. All right, so senior year, you, you graduate. What do you, what do you think at this point? Are you thinking, look, I'm going to take my, my degree in American studies and, and maybe get into some sort of government job? Or, hey, I kind of like this basketball thing. I might see if I can try to see if I can kind of continue this. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, like I did that internship my junior summer with Cory Booker's office and I just didn't love it. Like I love politics. I am on Twitter following all the news that's going on, you know, in Jackson, Mississippi, the water outage, you know, Mar-a-Lago and the FBI raid. Like I'm on top of all of that. I love reading it. I love staying up to date on current events and everything like that. But I realized I didn't love being in it. Like I thought it was kind of slow moving inefficient. And look, I just interned for three months in the city of Newark mayor's office. So there are other experiences that I'm sure would be way different, but I kind of was like, I really enjoyed the sports side more than the politics side. So I was for jobs. Like I said, I applied for a number of internships, San Antonio Spurs, Austin Toros, which was a Spurs G league team, a bunch of G league opportunities, Santa Cruz warriors, Sioux Falls, Sky Springfield, Skyforce, Springfield Armor, Atlanta Hawks, and then the Bucks thing came about in September. So from like May when I graduated to September, I'm on Facebook, which was more popular at the time. And like my friends are like, just got a job at JP Morgan Chase, can't wait to move to New York. And I'm like sitting on my couch waiting for an NBA team to email me back. Like it, it was frustrating. And I always tell people when they ask me for advice, I'm like, you have to be willing to be extremely patient and not get discouraged because whether you're trying to get into college, the pros, whatever, you're going to hear no a lot. And you're going to have a lot of uncertainty, even once you're established in the business. And if you're not okay living with uncertainty, then sports probably isn't the career for you. So yeah, it was just, I knew I wanted to work for an NBA team and I was applying to literally anything I could find. And luckily the Bucks called and offered me that position, but I would have taken the first thing, like if the Idaho Stampede, who I had had some conversations with, were like, we want you to come out and intern, I would have like drove out to Boise, Idaho. I, I was ready to just do whatever. So looking back, would you, would you have done anything different in terms of networking? Would you have gone to, let's say, like Summer League and, you know, maybe, you know, spend a little bit more time there or maybe put together some projects to send to 
to GMs or to, to, to clubs for them to kind of evaluate your skills? And any thoughts around that? So that's a great question. And I did send, so one of the things I had realized when teams were calling me about our players at Vanderbilt, they'd always say, hey, do you have Dan Muller's number? Or do you have John Jenkins high school coach's number? We'd like to talk to him. So one of the projects I did was I took the Draft Express Top 100 for the 2013 NBA Draft and put together contact lists of their high school AAU and college coaching staffs, academic people, trainers, managers, and you know tried to track down phone numbers, emails, spending a lot of time in school directories, and then put some of my personal scouting reports if I'd seen the players or interesting articles. So that was kind of my big work product that I sent. Um, and got a lot of good feedback on it. The thing I learned is once you send someone something and they have it in their possession, they're probably not going to call you back. They might say, thanks for this, <coughs> but they have no reason to call you back. It sounds harsh, but it's like, oh, we got all this information. We don't have a position. So like, I don't need to talk to this kid again. Um, so that was definitely like kind of tough finding that balance between showing what you can do versus giving away all the cards before you get something out of it, an interview, a phone call, a meeting in person. Uh, one thing I did that I thought was really beneficial, I was close with our SID at Vandy, a guy named Andy Boggs, fantastic human being. And he would always send me the list of scouts that were attending every home game. So I would look at the list and email them beforehand to try to set up a meeting pregame. No, I like that. I like that. So let's talk about Let's talk about the the draft process. You've been behind the scenes, and you know we hear so many stories about what goes on. Talk, walk us through, I guess, a typical cycle uh, for a team in terms of draft preparation and your role, because you've done a couple different done a couple different roles in that. Yeah, so I would say the draft cycle starts the day after the draft ends. So your Draft is June 22nd, and on June 23rd, you're already starting to think about the draft for next year because there's always events that need to be evaluated, whether it's the FIBA U20s or U18s in Europe, or you have the All-Star Camps, the CP3 Camp, the Damian Lillard Formula Zero Camp, Nike Global Academy. Like, There's always something going on for the most part, so you're always kind of building out that list. And I would say from like end of June to end of September, what you're trying to do is put together a target list. It's probably like 150 to 250 players, guys that whether it's on film or in person, you want to make sure you're touching at some level to get some familiarity with. And that's usually going to be the pool of players that you end up drafting from. Now there are going to be guys who come out of nowhere and get onto the radar like Jalen Williams from Santa Clara was like not on anybody's draft board. You know, people knew about him, but like I wouldn't say he was by far super like highly touted going into last year and ends up being a lottery pick. Um, so, you know, there's cases like that where Josh Primo was kind of a guy that people expected to stay in school multiple years, ended up becoming, you know, a high lottery pick as well. So there's, a process to like getting that initial list. And then as the year goes on, you try to winnow it down. And usually it's, you know, talent. So you're evaluating the, you know, you winnow it from 150 to 120. 
And then you start to incorporate character evaluations, medical evaluations, fit evaluations, um, contract needs and like roster needs. So there's a lot of things, but you start really wide. And then as the year goes on, you slowly get smaller and smaller and smaller. And then once you get your pick assigned via the lottery, then you really like narrow in on a really select group and you do a deep dive onto those players. Daniel, we've talked to a bunch of people and it's fascinating uh, and we've been involved in it and uh, it's been called the red fold or the red file, anything where people are doing a deep dive into, you know, Layson's social media, his tweets, his everything, and they just dig and dig and dig because they want to really find out, you know, as a rookie, we're going to invest a lot of money. But then also as a free agent, before you get that max contract, we really want to know what you're going to be like. Any insights to going into prospects or free agents, social media and doing a deep dive? Yeah, so it definitely happens. You know, teams do it differently. Some people have like an intern that tracks and follows every prospect um, accounts. And if they see something questionable, they'll flag it and start a file. Some teams use like social media scraping services. So they'll take their history dating back 10 years or whenever they started the account and look for red flags or patterns of behavior, whether it's, you know, someone might be posting like slang for a certain gang affiliation or someone is posting, you know, curse words or pictures of themselves smoking marijuana or references to drugs, whatever it may be, teams are looking at it. You know, I think it varies how much each team values what they learn from those processes, but it's for sure happening um, at a deep level. And teams are always trying to gather that extra bit of information that can help them make the most informed decision possible. So now within a couple of years, COVID threw a curveball soon high school to pros will be normal. So people like you in that position, now you've got to anticipate when they're going to allow high school players to go into the draft. But doing your background checks on a high school senior, it's a whole, even though it might be just one year, but one, two, three years, a lot of things can get hidden that you may not know about. So uh, do you think it goes through the NBA soon enough that they'll go right to high school to pro? Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely something that's being discussed. I don't have any inside knowledge on those discussions, but I will say that you can typically get better information. The longer a player is in college, in high school, you know, because a senior, the touch point for a college senior, especially now if a kid transfers, you, you have two different schools potentially, two different coaching staffs. There's movement on the coaching staff. You have managers at two different places, academic people. Uh, you know, I always used to say the three people I would talk to for background were an academic advisor, strength coach or trainer, and a student manager because the head coach always has some level of investment in the kid because if their player gets drafted in the first round, it makes them look good. So, you know, there are times where the head coach would shoot you straight and you get an honest answer, but a lot of times they're 
you know, protecting their player because it's in their best interest. Whereas the academic counselor, they don't care if the player goes in the first round because if the player was the reason their APR score dropped, they're going to be honest and they're going to be pissed about that because it reflects on their job. You know, the managers, a lot of times they're trying to get into the NBA like I once was, and they're trying to show how much they know. So they'll be a little more forthcoming. And then the strength coach and the athletic trainer, I've just found to be very candid because they see, you know, a different side of the player in the weight room and with their bodies and their diets and sort of like the professional habits that they would need. So those are the three people I always tried to touch, um, you know, media writers that were close to the program could always, could be a great resource. But I think if you're coming right out of high school, so you have a high school coach who, you know, and if we thought college coaches, it makes them look good to have a first round pick. Then, you know, the high school coach from Chapel Hill high school, and he gets a first round pick. It's like, going to be potentially the ability to get him from Chapel Hill High School to Montverde Academy. Like it's going to help elevate those coaches even more than it does for a college coach. So trying to sift through the BS and what's honest and what's not um, is really a challenging part. And you kind of have to cultivate sources and you have your go-tos that you develop year after year as you build relationships with people. But it's really important to you know, have those multiple touch points and data points of people you can talk to. And if they're coming straight out of high school, you're just limiting the people you can touch base with. So Daniel, how different is the approach with international players? Because obviously the Bucks have done well uh, with uh, international, you know, as far as finding talent there, but is it a different approach? Are you talking more to the club and the national level coaches? Yeah, the club, the national level coaches, a lot of players internationally start playing at a really young age, you know, within certain clubs. So it's 13, 14 years old. So a lot of like the youth coaches, we had two great international scouts at the Bucks, Cornell David and Paolo Mota, uh, one based in Hungary, one based in Italy. So they were kind of our boots on the ground over in Europe and would keep us updated on who we needed to know in that place. But a lot of the evaluation is the same, but you can evaluate you usually have a much greater track record of um, reports on a player internationally because they're being scouted from the time they're like 14, 15 in some cases. So you could have like 35 reports on an international player, whereas a one and done freshman, you might have 15. And then what about in terms of, like you said, the Twitter, just the the character you're using pretty much the same approach. Yeah. You're trying to talk to the same people. You know, you'll evaluate Twitter, you know, if certain teams do background checks or PI um, reports, you know, that's definitely more difficult overseas because of potential relationships with law enforcement over there and getting, you know, criminal records. So that's a much tougher nut to crack than hiring a PI in the U.S. But uh, I'm sure teams do it, especially teams that are considering a player in the top five internationally. So what advice would you give to someone who's listening to uh, the podcast who wants to go into the scouting world and, and really kind of be able to do talent evaluation and, and be able to, to put together reports? What, what have you learned that you would pass on to others? So the best piece of advice I ever got in terms of scouting was from Dave Babcock. And Dave is a longtime personnel guy for the Bucks, 25 plus years uh, both of his brothers were GMs in the NBA. Pete Babcock with the Cleveland Cavaliers, or uh, Atlanta Hawks, excuse me. Uh, Rob Babcock with the Toronto Raptors. 
great family. His nephews are in basketball. His son, Matt, runs a, a basketball news is draft coverage. So really great people. And I, when I first got to the Bucks, I was like, I need to have the longest, most detailed reports of anyone to show how much I know. So at one point, this is probably my first or second year, Dave Babcock, you know, pulls me into his office and he's like, Hey Danny, like, what do you think about your scouting reports? Like, oh, you know, I think they're pretty good, pretty detailed. He's like, they are, they're very good and they're very detailed, but I guarantee you no one's reading them. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, the audience for these reports is John Hammond, you know, who was our GM at the time and David Morway, who's our assistant GM at the time. And he's like, think about the number of emails that cross their desk every night that they have to look through. As soon as they see you write four paragraphs about, I think the player was Jakar Sampson. Um, Jakar Sampson, like uh, they're going on to the next thing. Like they don't have time to read, you know, his right hand spin into his left hand hook off the left block. Like, can he play? How would he fit? And what, you know, like narrow it down. And that was the biggest lesson and most valuable lesson. And now, you know, when I see people send reports that are three pages long, I'm like, I'm not, I don't have the time to read that. And I tell people like, nobody really is going to have the time to read that. So I would say you got to figure out a way to get your point across succinctly and capture the attention. You know, everyone's attention spans have been diluted with technology and all the different distractions. And especially if you're trying to catch the attention of an NBA general manager or scout who has so many things going on at once, you need to be pretty catchy. You need to be um, informative. But if I see someone send me something that's a 25 page attachment, I'm not going to look at it. I might look at the first page. I might scroll down. I'm not going to read the whole thing. And I guarantee 98% of the other people aren't either. So Lyson, you know, one of my favorite questions is what will your legacy be? Well, I'm going to answer this at a young age. And you started something that can affect change that can make the world a better place Take us into scouting and scavenging and just, you mentioned briefly the thought behind it, but the evolution and how big can this become? Yeah, so it's been amazing. Uh, Initially, so I saw a tweet probably 2016, and I've been trying to find this tweet, and I can't find it uh, anywhere. Um, I thought it was from Ian Begley of ESPN.com. Like it was someone who covered the Yankees and they posted a picture of a suitcase full of toiletries and said, at the end of every season, I donate all the toiletries from my hotel stays to a veteran shelter. And I was like, wow, that's a really cool idea. Never acted on it. Then I'm in Las Vegas in the winter of 2019 for the G League showcase. And at the Vegas hotels, you get slippers, you get robes, you get shampoos off the wazoo you get four different bars of soap for the bathtub like there's so much stuff and i was like i I was taken back to that tweet and i was like you know what i'm gonna start doing this and i'm posted something on instagram like i'm gonna do this i'd hope people follow and then i was like you know what i've made a lot of relationships in seven years in basketball let me try to get other teams and people involved so i sent out mass text messages created an instagram page and we got some good participation and people were like, Oh, that's a really neat idea. Two months later, COVID hits and nobody's doing community service. Nobody's traveling. So I 
I was in New Jersey at the time and Newark, New Jersey, which is where both of my mom's parents were born, was devastated by COVID, had the highest death rate of any city in the country other than New York uh, early on. So wanted to do something to give back to Newark and got connected to the mayor's office, Mayor Ros Baraka and his uh, chief of staff, Mitty Baraka, his brother and a woman named Jennifer Cole. And they were doing a food relief program where they were distributing uh, meals to families who had kids in the school lunch program because those kids weren't going to school. They weren't getting meals. So every Wednesday they would distribute uh, meals for families of four to residents. So we partnered with them to do a toiletry drive in addition to one of those um, meal distributions. And, you know, I had everyone send me the supplies they had collected. We did, you know, went to some other hotels locally to try to get some donations and had, you know, Steve Peichel from Rutgers, Mitch Henderson from Princeton, Greg Horenda at the time with Fairleigh Dickinson, uh, Kevin Willard sent some of his staff from Seton Hall, Tony Bazella, Seton Hall women's coach, like had a lot of local community met Carla Barubi from Princeton come out to volunteer and that got us a lot of pub, um, you know, being quarantined and not being able to go anywhere, was able to kind of do a lot of word of mouth. We did some webinars on sports and enacting change during COVID to just try to raise awareness of the brand. And it, it's kind of grown. We had over 120 teams participate at some level last year, whether it was one person collecting, whether it was a whole team collecting, you know, some of our biggest programs uh, Buffalo men's basketball, Tom Fox was great. My alma mater, Joey Cantafio at Vanderbilt did a hell of a job. Um, they got a couple hundred pounds worth of supplies, I think. Um, NJIT, Seton Hall women. Um, so there's been a lot of great programs. Toledo, Coach Kowalczyk there has been really supportive. And it's been cool to see it grow. And it's such an easy thing. A lot of this stuff gets thrown out regardless of whether you use it or not, because they don't know if it's been opened unless it has one of those seals. And, you know, one of the questions I got when I started it was, don't you feel like you're stealing from the hotel? And my answer would be like, if you go to a game and they give you a bobblehead, you go to a Bucks game and they give you an, a bobblehead lace in for Giannis. And you're like, I don't like Giannis. He's not my favorite player. I'm team LeBron. And you give that bobblehead to Jeff. Like that's your prerogative. It was given to you and you decide what to do with it. You could have hung the bobblehead up in your apartment or you could give it to a friend or you could throw it in a dumpster. Like, you know, when you check into a hotel, when it, you get the room, it comes with the toiletries. I choose to donate mine to people in need. Other people can use them. Other people can take a squirt and throw it away. You know, it's your prerogative. So my prerogative is why not try to help other people? It's an amazing cause. In simplicity, this thing can just grow and grow. Layson and I talk, you know, about hunger in the U.S. and how it, it happens and things we can do. But your idea is simple. They're throwing it out. You paid for the room. Obviously, it's all built in. Is there a next step? Can we, I know athletes, but is there, can you partner with Marriott? Can you get buy-in from another group? What's the next step for it? Yeah, that's a great question. And one thing I want to touch on, Jeff, that you mentioned, you know, you and Layson talking about hunger in the U.S. And that's one of the things, no matter where I do it, whether it's an event in Milwaukee or we did one at the Final Four in New Orleans this year or our events in Newark, how grateful people are to get these supplies. 
like stuff that we take for granted. And they're so appreciative and so thankful that people would take the time and spend, you know, 20, 30 minutes talking with them, meeting with them, hearing their story. And like these supplies can make the difference between being able to shower before you have a job interview or just feeling good about yourself, being able to shave, being able to do things that we take for granted every day because we've been blessed to <clears throat> have lives where we have some type of stability. And a lot of people don't, but you know that was one of the, the really neat things and something that doesn't get old is doing these events and seeing the gratefulness that people have for, for what we do. I would have a hard time. And I know we've been there coaching and all of that, that, you know, the game, I got everything. I'm focused that beginning of the year. I'm telling my manager, when we check out of wherever the Marriott, you make sure the manager goes to every room, you know, win or lose and just collect the stuff they didn't use. Like it's a simple no brainer. You know, I mean, the big schools, everyone's chartering. There's no extra cost. And you just build it up, build it up. And at the end of the year, there's always so many people, you're right, that just want to feel good about themselves. And, uh, and and we really are so blessed. And thank you for doing that. But now let's get on to modern day. Uh, you're at Howard now, but your head coach, Kenny Blakeney, and I said this before, can make the statement he was coached by the two greatest coaches at their perspective level. Morgan Wooten was his high school coach. Coach K was his college coach. I know you've been there just a short time, but what lessons can you just see that are coming your way? Yeah, so I got connected to Coach Blakeney. Um, you know, I was really intrigued with getting into the college world with name, image, and likeness and feeling like you can make an impact um, at that 18 to 22 year old age. And I reached out to a number of programs and uh, reached out to coach Blakeney and we kind of got connected through one of our former G league players at the Wisconsin herd who he coached at Harvard, a guy named Kyle Casey, who's now a uh, financial advisor for athletes. And Kyle connected us actually at the Duke UNC final four game. Um, We were on the concourse and then Kenny and I got breakfast the next day and chatted for four hours about his vision for Howard, his experiences, you know, my career goals, what I wanted to do. And I think the thing that's impressed me so far is how inclusive he is. Like he makes everyone feel a part of what they're doing. Like the other day we had to put loops together for the guys. Um, as we're getting that we Howard just signed a historic deal with Jordan brand, a 20 year partnership. So Jordan brand's been sending boxes every day of stuff. And, you know, me and the assistant coaches are assembling loops and there's Kenny Blakeney holding the loop and putting socks on it. And there's Rod Bolanis, you know, longtime coach at Notre Dame associate head coach here, you know, counting socks and labeling boxes. Like that's been the cool part to me so far is like nobody here is above doing anything, whatever needs to get done. Um, there's like a real sense of, of camaraderie and um, that, that I've really in, enjoyed. No, you're on with a great one. And uh, it's going to be fun to watch your career, to watch Kenny take off. And uh, Howard fans and boosters better enjoy him. He probably won't be there forever in this world, Lyson. But 
Let's have some fun. Coach Perkins, you ready to tee off with a little fun stuff here? Thank you for listening to the fifth quarter conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Lason Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave comments on social media. Social media. media. media.